if you look at problems alone, you get very quickly paralyzed. If you look at people, you come away inspired. I don't look at inclusion just as a philosophical point. It's actually a pretty smart business strategy. Welcome to Cross Pollination, Episode 20. We're a member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. You're listening to Cross Pollination, where we are here to plant familiar ideas in new soil. Our guests are original, creative, and bold. They've typically done something differently from other people in their fields and gotten interesting, sometimes unexpected results. I'm NB, and I'll be your host. This podcast is brought to you by ATB Financial. ATB is on a mission to transform banking by making it work for people. They do this through their customer obsession and innovating at the forefront of robotics, AI, blockchain, and the future. Visit atbalphabeta.com to learn more. What happens when you combine close attention to customer interests with your own unique stamp? This week, Cross-Pollination talks to Deepa Prahalad. She's been a commodities trader, management consultant, and international consumer products expert specializing in design and strategy. She's also co-author of the book Predictable Magic on Corporate Strategy, Design, and Customer Connection. Fully aware of the challenges and complexities around innovation and international work, Deepa is a business optimist, an expert on business and emerging markets, and an advocate of innovation in creating social impact. She's an innovation thinker of the kind we should hear from when the glass seems less than half full. In this episode, she chats about roofs in India, Aragon Oil in Morocco, the Dyson vacuum cleaner, and oil rooms, Asia's answer to Airbnb. Deepa is a Thinkers 50 Global Innovation alum based in Southern California. You know, there's really this organic process that seems to be underway in most parts of the world. You know, there's this frustration that we are getting a lot better at scaling and building big and profitable companies, but it's not always translating into greater well-being on the ground. And that's something that you see in developed and developing countries. And it's really interesting because the level of inequality we have today is growing At the same time, the level of extreme poverty is at some of its lowest levels historically. So it creates this really interesting puzzle. And I think that's given a lot of energy around the idea of business doing more, of leveraging its tremendous resources and talent, individuals giving back. Despite good intentions, there really isn't a correlation between just aid and the level of prosperity in countries. But there's an indisputable correlation between innovation and prosperity. What are all those inequalities about? How can different parties try to address wide gaps between rich and poor, sketchy labor practices, health gaps, gender inequalities, and a lot more? As Deepas pointed out, global inequalities affect people in less wealthy emerging markets and wealthier developed countries, to different degrees and in different ways. There are also big challenges that need collaboration between the private sector, governments, and non-governmental organizations. In some cases, those inequalities have given rise to social movements, political trends, even conflicts. So how can business and innovation help? Deepa gives a very specific example of what it can look like when there's a win for both producers and consumers in emerging and developed markets. Well, you know, I think this is just such an exciting field, and it's really a win-win. I don't think that innovation and social innovation especially needs to really be about guilt. I just find it's intellectually and emotionally so engaging. Um, And it can now, with a lot of changes on the ground and in technology, it can also be profitable as well. So you don't really have to draw this line between, you know, how you make your living and what your desired contribution to the world really looks like. You can combine both. 
And I think um, that's really the fun learning. And the other thing that happens is people have not even really begun to scratch the surface on co-developing a lot of interesting products and services. It's not just that we have billions of new consumers, we have billions of new collaborators. And that's where I really see the excitement going forward because a lot of people who are in you know economically disadvantaged are actual makers and i've seen this you know like my tailor family tailor in india i mean i wouldn't consider him very poor or anything he's he's probably middle class but he has a very puny little shop but he just is great at what he does and my cousin who works for amazon in london was getting married and she saw some fancy off the shoulder sari blouse that she wanted for her wedding party and they had a video chat and he created a flawless blouse having her friend measure um you know over video chat he wrote things down and she arrived she got exactly what she wanted much less expensively than she could have ever gotten it done in london and you know he has maybe a 300 square foot shop and that's where i think there's so much excitement um that we have yet to really capture that we can do all of these collaborations and um and really make it a win-win both for the producer and for the final consumer wherever they may be the idea of consumers wherever they may be is another area where deepa has focused specifically on consumers who work and live at the bottom of the global economic pyramid to use a phrase originated by her late father CK Prahalad a strategy professor who famously first wrote about that topic in a book of a similar name those people typically weren't thought of as a viable consumer market for a long time and as a result they had correspondingly little choice in the products and services available to them Deepa's been an advisor to a roofing products company in India that innovated to co-create a product working through many iterations with the customers who would purchase it. The product not only gives them a choice in sheltering homes, but practically improves lives by improving living conditions. So I actually um after a talk really ran into a young entrepreneur named Hasith Ganatra who came up to me and said, "Look, I I've, I've really studied the housing issue in India and what I'm finding is that between rich and poor, you don't really if people have built their walls with brick, they're fairly sturdy, but the real difference between rich and poor is the roofing that's available. You know, wealthy people of course have concrete roofs that are durable and stay dry and there's just nothing in between corrugated metal sheets um and concrete and I want to change that. So he developed kind of a modular roofing tile that's similar to like what a roofing tile in a basement might be in North America and said why can't we just create something that would retrofit on top of an existing dwelling and i this was a very early stage about 4 years ago and i said oh think about design at the outset and he said but look at the conditions people are in i said that's because they don't have options that's a condition that's forced on them but if you look at already how they're dressing the cleanliness inside the house you can see that people are gravitating and do care about design and just in this case they don't have a way to exercise that choice and to his credit he really went through you know 250 iterations and came up with a material that is also very sustainable the main material is recycled cardboard and they have proprietary additives and developed a waterproof coating for it so it lasts in monsoons so you're really able to get 80% 
of the strength of concrete at a very low cost. And more importantly, you can transform people's lives in a day. Once this goes in, uh, their house doesn't leak. We've had some of these up now for four years, no leaks in the monsoons. And again, collaboration was critical. All of these, um, you know, microfinance lenders partner and help install these. And now there's a lot of interest because, again, that explicit attention to design was paid. People like the story. They like what's being done. And they're also saying, well, architecturally, it's just a very interesting material. Maybe we can use this in the office to make cubicle partitions or false ceilings in offices so the air conditioning is more efficient. So when you think about design and when you think about emotional connection, your market size almost always organically becomes larger than what you initially planned. And I think that's one really exciting thing. And what I really learned in this process of us going back and interviewing and hearing about some of the interviews on WhatsApp is that a lot of the poverty we see around the world really isn't about a lack of information. It's fundamentally about a lack of choices. People really understood the cost of bad options. They knew how much, you know, there a lot of them were day laborers. They knew every time it leaks, I miss a day of work. And that's what this cost me. This is what the cost of my kid getting sick was. People do have an awareness, but they need to have options in order to move forward. The roofing business underscores how innovating a product and a business model to enable roofing purchases led to new value both for the manufacturer and for customers. It also highlights some elements Deepa believes are essential to doing business with customers at the bottom of the economic pyramid, offering a choice through good quality rather than a low quality product, and understanding that it's not always financially high risk to engage with customers in this sector. In this case, microfinance assisted with the roof installations. And critically, there was good design. Design is an area where Deepa has a lot of insight. It's the topic of her book, Predictable Magic. She tells us why design is important and what co-creating in collaboration with customers can do. The design is kind of your your statement about who you are and what you're about. And I think that's always been something really interesting. And if you look today at how people are using design and the narrative and an entrepreneurial approach to address very complex problems. Um, rather than just creating awareness, there's simple ways to fold in. One of the crazy cases and very interesting cases I've seen is in Morocco when they were dealing with climate change, women's empowerment, all these very complex things. Again, paralyzing if you look at how would we change attitudes. What they really started experimenting with, and it was a 20-year process, it wasn't an overnight, they realized that this argan oil tree actually retains soil, it gives good cover, and it's a pretty labor-intensive process to um, harvest this fruit that the argan oil tree gives, but it has moisturizing properties that are much um, more significant than a lot of conventional ingredients. And so they really invested very heavily in showing on a scientific basis what the efficacy of argan oil was. And it was really branded and sold as a premium ingredient. And now you see that there's like the top 100, you know, cosmetics brands all source argan oil. And it's called out where it's used as an ingredient. Like this is something very special. It's not a commodity product. And they created a simple way of labeling. So many things that would be done in a traditional corporate process were applied. But what the 
spillover effect of that was, is that you actually now have really removed any incentive for people to deforest in those areas. You see, in fact, new growth of trees at the regions where they're growing. They're actually able to employ a lot of women, boost exports, do a lot of amazing things with a fairly simple plan that's just well executed and persistently applied. Especially when you're starting out, if you're trying to do something new, either as a corporate or as an entrepreneur, design really is the difference between people telling you that you have a great idea and actually placing an order. I asked Deepa what innovators developing new products and services should focus on as the most important elements in the design process. She talked both about doing the research and understanding the customer, advice every entrepreneur hears to make sure their product closely matches those customers' interests, and about storytelling, about the problem the innovation is trying to solve, why, and about the company that makes the product, what it's about. Her example is about Dyson vacuum cleaners. Vacuum cleaners and exciting design are admittedly a pretty unexpected combination. I think it's two things. One, it's really the physical product or service that you're doing. And the second really critical aspect in gaining traction and acceptance is the storytelling. So I think you have to really talk about what was the inspiration and the thought process? Why was this an important problem to solve? What did it take you to get there? Why should I care? These are all questions that are floating around in people's minds as they're looking at your creation. So some of the answers really come from observation and market research, but there's still a lot of room for companies to showcase a unique point of view. And look at the richest industrial designer in the world, you know, Dyson. Who would have thought that, you know, designing a vacuum cleaner would make you a billionaire? And it's a really interesting combination of this passion about solving a problem, but also putting your own point of view out there. If you had simply done observation and consumer research, I don't think you were going to get surveys back that said, I want something bright yellow. Please make it three times the cost of all other competitors. (laughs) Leave out the bag because I really like looking at that debris lurking in my carpet. I get a morbid fascination from it. Um, (laughs) Nobody would have ever said that, right? You know, but so you have this kind of very bold design, but It works because it's calling attention to this long research process to an individual who seemed to be very um, concerned about quality. And that narrative is, is key as well. I don't think you buy that without knowing the story as well. And now you see this more and more in different companies. You know, you go into coffee shops, they tell you where your beans were sourced. You see a popular grocery chain here, Trader Joe's, they have all their managers talking about how they chose their lineup of of products. And I think that's the real critical point. Companies like people really need friends to give them advice and help them call out missteps. Look at a tech giant like Apple, which just had their FaceTime flaw called out by a 14-year-old boy, right? I mean, so there's a lot of room for people who keenly translate trends in an understandable way to collaborate with big companies. So I think the real factor is not where you start, but how trusted you are and how credible you are. I see all the major banks in the US using Khan Academy videos now to explain really complex finance in simple terms. Trust and credibility as elements of storytelling and design. Going back to entrepreneurs and how design relates to creating a new business, 
I wanted to know how entrepreneurs play a role in innovation. That's where some familiar innovation themes that we've heard about on previous shows came up. The ability to be curious, to envision something new, to experiment, and execute on a plan. And also optimism. Entrepreneurs as persistent optimists focused on creating solutions and better visions for the future. That's one thing where, you know, the individual path and, um, you know, to and the inspiration behind an entrepreneurial journey can be very individual. And, you know, I think now it's romanticized maybe too much. It is a lot of hard work, but I think there's some distinct advantages. You're just forced to be close to your consumer. Um, you, you have no choice and you have a lot of skin in the game and you have to be very skillful in your use of resources. Um, and I think the other things you're just forced to reflect very deeply upon your own experiences. You understand the constraints of people because, you know, you don't have somebody ordering your lattes and whiteboards and you have to deal with the whole chain from the very practical to the big idea and the vision. And that's a really important um, learning experience, which you don't, which you get insulated from as you rise in traditional corporations. Um, so there's a lot of competition. We know the statistics for entrepreneurs aren't always encouraging um, in terms of who makes it past that magical three-year mark. But there's also a lot of really new tools. Um, you know, I think entrepreneurship really needs to be supported because it really on its own unleashes forces that can't fully be quantified. I think especially in societies where there is division, the, the role of entrepreneurship isn't just about money. I think entrepreneurs have a few characteristics that are critical for societies to move forward. You, know, you have to be future focused if you're an entrepreneur. No one's going to fund you if you're trying to start a business for needs 20 years ago. You, know, you really have to be focused on experimenting with new ideas. You can't do something somebody else has done. And I think if you're an entrepreneur, you just have to be an optimist. You, there's no point in opening... Uh, a new business if you don't believe something better is possible and you really have to focus on action. And I think those four things, even if the individual businesses don't succeed to the degree we want, those forces are just really important to have in society. Um, you know, and one thing I've really learned is that if you look at problems alone, you get very quickly paralyzed. If you look at people, you come away inspired. And the Nice thing today is because there's big data across income groups, across countries, to a degree that wasn't before, entrepreneurs really have this ability to be inclusive at birth if they choose to be. Um, they don't have to struggle as much to get at the numbers. They maybe have to spend more time struggling with the design and the narrative. Going back to designing products and services for emerging markets and the bottom layer of the economic pyramid, it's striking how once consumers in that market are offered choices through useful products and services, how quickly that cascades into new industries and demand for new products. For example, in the way that cell phones have enabled financial and many other services to be delivered through mobile platforms. Deepa talks here about what customers in that layer want, what they're willing to purchase, and what happens when you take an idea that exists in one place, in this case, room rentals in a similar style to Airbnb, and transplant it and adapt it for somewhere else, redesigned especially for that market. It's a great example of design, innovation, and of course, cross-pollination. You know, if you look at what's actually been adopted at scale in emerging markets, even in very poor regions, it's really cell phones, financial services, branded fashion, personal care, all these counterintuitive things. And I think 
none of them can really adequately be explained by a theory about needs. They really all are a reflection of aspirations. And that's what's really interesting. And I think there's some layers underneath. What I finally realized as I went around, I said, if people really wanted dumbed down products and services, they could make it themselves. Poor people are makers. So creating something that is kind of a very, um, you know, less quality, maybe more affordable, but not very interesting thing, it doesn't make sense when people have less margin for error. They're not going to be early adopters. They really need a crystal clear value proposition in order to adopt something. What people are saying with their purchase decisions is that I have a vision for my life. I want to do something better and I'm willing to pay for quality. You're not um, seeing people who are adopting these very cheap knockoffs. In fact, a lot of companies take really big hits when they do things that are of poor quality and perhaps affordable. So that's the really interesting finding is that people want respect, not sympathy. They want to do things their own way. Um, that's that's another thing that you're allowed to personalize, you're allowed to express yourself. So those desires are there, regardless of income. In India, there's a company called Oyo Rooms, which people are expecting might exceed the size of Airbnb in the next five years. What they did was simply go not directly to homeowners who maybe had an extra room they wanted to rent out, which almost skews you toward more well-to-do clients. They went directly to the small mom and pop guest houses that are very uneven in quality and basically said, we know there's like six things that completely turn people off when they're traveling. You know, it's dirty sheets, bad toiletries, um, you know, no air conditioning. We They identified six things and they basically said, we come in, we let you, um, make a brand promise. We'll provide you the linens. We'll provide you the toiletries. So it's a very predictable experience on those two things for the traveler. Spotless bathroom and, um, you know, working Wi-Fi AC. You only have to provide breakfast, not all meals, if you can't do all meals. And you are now part of our platform. And in three swipes, you can go and book a room. So it's an even hu- bigger cost differential Um, than Airbnb can offer. They have this huge number of rooms that are listed. They've already expanded out into China, Indonesia, many other places. And it's also, by coincidence, also all funded in the Silicon Valley in this last round and SoftBank and others. So a direct approach isn't necessarily less orderly or slower um, anymore. The direct approach Deepa is talking about is the approach of proceeding from the top of the economic pyramid from wealthier, more established layers on down. The possibilities of doing business with customers at the bottom layer of the pyramid has completely changed that pattern. It's become a hot topic, too. There's been a recent spate of new books and articles on this subject and the opportunities around it. I wanted to know, too, what else is different in addition to what we've talked about in doing business in emerging markets? My own experience with that confirms something that Deepa talks about here, the development of products and services that not only answer aspirational desires, but also educational and sometimes health needs at the same time. The answers need to be not only innovative, but also creative and very deeply aligned with customers' interests. It's challenging to develop, but also very interesting and rewarding. 
Well, I think a lot of the principles are similar, but the nuances are different and important. There's so many new and first-time consumers. It's very similar to when China and Eastern Europe first opened their markets. That's kind of another transition we're going through today with big countries like India and others opening up. And a lot of the fastest-growing global economies today are in emerging markets. But I think that the two models that were available, the two economic models of Western-style capitalism and the export-led growth of East Asia aren't really viable models for people developing today. But there's some exciting things. There's just this huge global decrease in extreme poverty. So, you know, less than 10% of the world really is in extreme poverty. There's a lot of connectedness because of cell phones. So you really have big data and a payments infrastructure in place. So if you are ready and willing to do the work to create products and services, you have billions of new consumers out there. And I think also the tides are changing where people don't see engaging around the world as much of a a charity or a CSR thing. There's really a desire to see um, genuine work from companies. They're much more supportive of people trying to make the world a better place. It's not seen as something flaky anymore. Um, And I think the difference in emerging markets is you just don't always have the luxury to kind of approach things as a trickle down kind of uh, problem. You have to look on the ground explicitly and, and build back up because there's such large numbers that are in low income categories. And the social focus tends to be a little bit more explicit because you're trying to create aspirational products and services that can at the same time increase access to health, education, sanitation, all of these things. So you do have to spend a lot of front end time understanding you know, underlying habits and attitudes as well as what aspirations may be. And um, that's where there's a lot more work on the front end, but, you know, huge rewards for the people who spend the time. Entrepreneurs should remember one thing. There's always maybe that little bit of self-doubt when you're trying to, especially in the social sphere or when you're trying to take on a big business and saying, you know, am I really capable of creating a lasting change? And I think that's one piece of self-doubt that people should try to remove from their mindset as much as possible. Is even if you're doing something as serious as addressing poverty, ask the question the opposite way. Take away three or four things from your life, air conditioning, the phone, computing, and you're right back to where a lot of the people you pity may be today. <laughs> so you, and all those things were invented in our lifetime. So we know that business and innovation can create prosperity. It can create change lives. But I would say when you're approaching design, do not take an elitist view. Really try to think about design as a shared language, not a secret language. That's when it's very powerful, both in terms of your financial results and in terms of your impact. I asked Deepa one final question about opportunities both for emerging markets and developed ones, and what lessons there are from emerging markets, and especially from the bottom of the pyramid. In a classic innovator's way, she's seen opportunity in some of the biggest common challenges, and a way to find some of what we've been missing through community. I think another organization that I've worked with called Arogia World that's really trying to address this you know, very rapid spread of non-communicable diseases like diabetes, heart disease, cancer that's happening everywhere, but especially um, ill-prepared 
for it with the health systems in emerging markets has really been that, you know, across the world, both in developed and developing countries, we're going to get a lot of what I call the good, bad news. You know, you look at all of these statistics on non-communicable disease and you're like, oh my God, 60, you know, 80% of people are going to pass away from this and this is how fast it's spreading. And then you step back for a minute and realize that those numbers represent this huge gain in maternal health. It represents longer lifespans. It represents a lot of prosperity. As the discussion when I was growing up was always, look at all the starving kids in India. <laughs> you know, you used to hear that in, in school in North America a lot, like, well, don't waste because... And now you already see that people are actually um, have the money and to experiment with junk food, to um, eat more, have choices in, in their consumption patterns. So some of the things that you see on the surface as huge problems don't feel like progress, but they actually are. So you and interesting thing there is there isn't a great Western model for dealing with these problems either. Earlier, you could say, all right, we, we kind of know how to prevent famine. We don't have a single point, one size fits all answer saying, this is how you create health anywhere in the world. And that's where I think all the entrepreneurial opportunity lies, all the potential for collaborating between policy, between private enterprise, between social workers and individuals, because solving a lot of the New problems, I would say, we're dealing with it's sustainability, you know, combating terrorism. All of these things required sustained action in communities. And what we've always been really good at devising in corporations thus far has been like interventions. And we need to have a, a way to address longer term problems that depend on creating sustained behavior change, keeping people's motivation going, people dialogue going. And I think that's um, a new frontier that's emerging, both in emerging markets and in developed ones as well. Bottom line is, you know, the one thing poor people do have that I think we can learn a lot from is how do you create community? That's one thing that hasn't really been lost there. And I think that is really the mark of success, whether you're a tech company, whether you're a new product, uh, this idea of community is something that really cuts across all of those and deserves our explicit attention. Community, global health, inequalities, and social impact through business and innovation. Lots to think about. I'd like to know what you think. If you'd like to know more about this topic, you can check out Deepa's talks and articles online, and you can connect with her on Twitter at Deepa Prahalad. If you'd like to connect with Cross Pollination, you can find us at Pollinata1, also on Twitter. On the topic of creating something new, this episode is brought to you by the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. If you like this podcast, you can check out one of our fellow members, Creative Block, about artists and entrepreneurs with interesting stories doing creative work. You can find that show and all of the network's members at albertapodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or other podcast apps. Join us next time for an episode where teens show adults how it's done solving real-life problems with apps and entrepreneurship in the Technovation competition. See you next time.